Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. I am in very good company today with a speech and language pathologist and singing voice specialist who's conducted thousands of endoscopies to diagnose and help patients with laryngeal disorders. She is an author of four books and has presented globally at many events and is also the executive principal of getvocal-now.com. Kerry Obert, it's such a pleasure to be with you today and welcome to the podcast. How are you and how is Ohio treating you? Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, Ohio is good. We're finally getting some spring weather, so we're we're enjoying. This is the beautiful time of year to be here. Nice, nice. We'll be popping over because it's very grey here in England today, so <laughs> we want it back. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've we've had grey all week, and so I I think we finally have earned our our sunny day here today. Fair enough. We'll let you have it. We'll let you have it. <laughs> um, you've recently presented a. a couple of really great masterclasses for the BAST membership. And one of them is called Tongue-Centric Pedagogy, which discusses many things, including tongue landmarks and what we can actually do to utilize the back of the tongue in singing. So my first question is, what drew you to researching the tongue and putting your focus there and also on pharyngeal spaces in particular? I think, you know, Doing so many endoscopies, I began to really notice that we were using the pharynx and using the tongue in ways that I was not reading about in pedagogy, pedagogical books. And um, for example, I was seeing lots of closed spaces when people were singing. And in general, the, the pervasive kind of thinking is that we have wide open spaces when we're singing, that we're making lots of room in the pharynx. And it's actually the opposite. We're really making narrowed pharyngeal spaces. And in particular, in the high range, we're making really narrow, narrowed spaces. And a lot of times I would scope singers for just for some research project or, you know, a student kind of wandering through and wanting to get scoped. And they were always surprised when they made narrow spaces because they felt like they were making wide open spaces. And in fact, they would sort of go away thinking they were doing something wrong. And it was hard to convince them, no, this is actually good, normal, appropriate function uh, for your pharynx. So, you know, I I began to think that we really needed to have, uh, I guess it was my equivalent of, uh, I sometimes say breast cancer awareness month. It's not that all the cancers are not important, but, um, but I began to think the tongue in particular really needs a focus and it really needs some attention and it has been kind of neglected and not only neglected, but it's really been villainized. And I think that it's time that we start understanding the structure a little bit more and why it's been villainized and how we can sort of reframe the conversation. So I guess I've had an interest in this area for probably more than 10 years and have just kind of gradually uh, gained momentum and uh, passion about the topic because, again, the more I learn about the tongue and the more I study the pharynx and the tongue and and kind of understand how acoustics works and um, the more I think, yes, this cause really needs to be championed 
And so I'm here for it. Yeah. Yes. Let's wave the tongue flag. I love it. That's right. Yeah. And, and secondly, what do you think is has been the cause or causes of the tongue being victimized? Uh, I think it's been, I, first of all, I think we don't have enough research on it. And so I think people have done the best they could do with the information they had. Um, and I do think there are cases of tongue misuse or perhaps tongue, maybe placement issue is a better a better term. And so we certainly have singers who come through our studios whose tongues are all bunched up or um, or they're pulling them back and they don't sort of have a balance in the structure. And I like to think about the tongue being akin to something like the tug of war game. I don't know if you play this in your country, but here we have this game where we get teams of players on either side of a rope and you, you know, each team tries to pull the other team over. And so when we get the tongue pulling back and we only have team members on one side of that tongue, uh, meaning the muscles that are pulling it back, and we don't have enough energy in the front of the tongue, we're going to get kind of uneven muscle activity. And those are the cases where I think we say, okay, there's tension, there's a problem, there's a placement issue. I, I don't love the term tension. I've been really vocal about this because the term tension implies muscle activity that remains after the activity has stopped. And I think we would be hard pressed to find people with sort of chronically contracted tongues in those back positions. You wouldn't have normal chewing, mastication, swallowing, speech, other functions. Now, do we sometimes feel muscle fatigue? Yes. Do we sometimes feel a little bit of muscle ache? Yes. Do we sometimes, but I think that's really different than the term tension that we might use when we sort of get chronic tension in the back or tension someplace else. Um, the tongue is a really robust, amazing, magnificent structure. It's got, you know, it's it's got large muscles and um, it's really geared. It can it can handle it, you know. And so sometimes I think this sort of treating it like it's this um, really delicate thing. Uh, I, I think it, it doesn't really match up with the uh, anatomical um, magnificence of this huge structure that resides in our in our uh, oral and pharyngeal cavity. Mm. So all that's to say, I think what we're really dealing with is people who have placement issues and they don't understand how to balance the tongue, how to balance the use of the tongue. Releasing it is certainly an option. But we sort of lose opportunities and potential there when we simply release every bit of activity in the tongue. And I think that has historically been our go-to. When we hear somebody who has a tongue placement issue, our instinct is just to release everything. Let's get the tongue forward. Let's, you know, thing with it on our lip. Let's try to let go of any engagement at all. But then we sort of lose possibilities with it because we are actually using the back of our tongue to shape every sound that we make. Mm -hmm. 
And we have a whole lot of contouring and possibilities back there that if we simply let go of everything, we are literally letting go of some timbre shaping possibilities that we have. So I am of the mindset of let's really delve in, understand the tongue, how it works, how we can uh, control with some degree of independence, the back and the front, um, and how can we work with that? I'd love to delve into the placement ideas, if that's okay. And in the webinar, you were talking about how when we're in the, the fetal state, how the back third is separate from the front two thirds of the tongue and how it develops in embryo. So can you talk a little bit about that and how we can therefore independently move this back part and how we can also therefore have the best optimal placement for the front two thirds? Yes. So, you know, originally when I started teaching on the tongue, I was talking more about the tongue root. And I've since really come to to call the back third of the tongue rather than talking about the root. The root really is sort of that part. If you were to lift your tongue up kind of from that frenulum back is is sort of the the root of the tongue. It's that lower region. And really what I'm talking about is the whole back third of the tongue. So if we sort of pull it out of your out of your throat and out of your mouth and just sort of divide that back third um just behind the dorsum, that that whole back third really is embryologically distinct. And I found this quite fascinating because working in, in otolaryngology for so many years, the surgeons always talked about the what they called the base of the tongue or the back of the tongue. And in otolaryngology textbooks, you'll learn that the back of the tongue really is that back entire third of the tongue. And on the tongue's surface, you can, there's kind of a V-shaped groove on the surface of the tongue where that begins, that back third. And behind that V, you're going to really feel lots of bumps on the back of the tongue. So if you sort of take your tip back there, maybe able to feel where all those bumps begin, those papillae. And uh, those are really intertwined. Those are sensory uh, sensory structures, and they're involved in our taste and perception of temperature and movement and all those things. But that back third of the tongue is really rich with those, and that's where that begins, sort of where all those bumps begin. And um, that back third developed separately from the front two-thirds in the womb. And I just, that just blew my mind to find that these really were kind of distinct uh, in their development. And ultimately they did fuse and become one structure. But the back of the tongue actually has its own sensory innervation separate from the front of the tongue. And I think this is some of what our singers struggle with, that they don't have good sensory awareness. Um, the sensory of the back of the tongue is more closely linked with swallowing and with food and perception of taste and things like that. And so I think often when we're sort of moving the front of the tongue, we don't have good awareness of what's happening in the back. And this is part of why we get kind of jumbled up with things. And by and large, I think one of the things that we struggle with is often when we are bringing the back of the tongue back, 
the front of the tongue will inadvertently come along for the ride. I know before you get like, uh, you know, articulation, it's not very good, or, um, or we get kind of like overly, overly kind of choked off kinds of sounds where we sort of pulled things back too much, too hard. Um, but really, your tongue has good independent control, which we exert all the time in swallowing. So, for example, when we swallow, the front of the tongue is forward and the back of the tongue goes back. This is a little bit like how an octopus can sort of slenderize itself and move through tiny little, I don't know if you've ever seen an octopus, but it can go through a tiny little opening and its body sort of elongates in both directions and sort of in opposition, what I call oppositional movement. And so we get sort of coming forward and pulling back at the same time. And this is quite a useful thing for us with our tongue, because when we pull the tongue back in the back third, we get some uh, darkening of the sound. We can get some ring, depending on what we are um, connecting that to. But at any rate, we can get this kind of oppositional movement, which can be quite helpful. So we can pull that tongue root back a little bit and we get just kind of a slight darkening of the timbre. And we can pull it back a little bit more and couple that with something like our M1 registration. And we get sort of ring, which has both um, chiaro and oscuro in the sound. And so we are using that back of the tongue, but the key really is keeping the front of the tongue forward and having kind of equal players on both sides of the rope. Mm. So is this what you would say, for example, in the scenario where a singer is descending in their range and as they get to their bottom notes, the larynx is going to drop a little but if they had a bit of frontward tongue so that the root wasn't or, or the tongue wasn't pulling back to depress the larynx too early, we get a sense of actually maybe more range with more clarity a little bit lower down because we've got the tongue a little bit more independent from the larynx and also the tongue in itself slightly independent in their parts. Does that make sense? Yes, so uh, I'm I'm a fan of the forward tongue placement anyway in the in the front of the mouth. I think it clears articulation. I think there are are acoustic benefits and I I think it just tends to help balance what's happening at the back. So, I'm a fan of kind of moving toward that high front placement sort of like what we do when we make an E sound. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of vocalizing with my singers on yay or yees, which are, are tend to be a little bit more forward mm -hmm. um, vowels. And ultimately, yes, that does help kind of keeping that forward tongue may help from kind of overly depressing the larynx um, and overly darkening too soon and um, dropping that larynx. You know, the interesting thing about the using that back third of the tongue, pulling it back into the pharynx a little bit, it is what we're doing when we use instructions like let's make a yawn sensation. This is a really subtle use of the back third of the tongue. And I think the perception of that is that it feels open. So if we tell, you know, and, and how many times have we read in pedagogy books sort of 
to to sing with a yawn kind of sensation, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think this is 400-year-old pedagogy um, to be talking about this kind of feeling. But in actuality, when we yawn, we are bringing a bit of the, the back third of the tongue back into the pharynx. Our perception is that it feels open. Mm-hmm. It's not open. It's sort of the opposite of that. We're actually narrowing the space, but the feeling is that it's open. And this is a good example of where perception and production do not match. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that by bringing that back third of the tongue back a little bit, we sort of get a little bit of a, a, a slightly darker resonance. Mm-hmm. Ha, 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 right? And sometimes I'll say uh, to students, let's use the feeling of a little bit of a gag. Ha, ha. Now I'm getting a bit more. Ha, ha. And if we look at that. I'm doing it. (laughs) My throat, I can feel it going. I can see you doing it. I was like, go ahead and try it. Yeah, we'll just have a lesson. Um, But but if if you do that, as I said, the perception is, is open. The actual production is more closed and narrow. Mm. Mm. And something that's really interesting that's come up in a book, um, and I'd love your opinion if if that's okay, which is um, from Singing With Your Whole Self, which is Nelson and Blade's uh, book on Feldenkrais. Um, And in one of the chapters there, chapter 12, on the hands and the mouth, they talk about how a trainer um, was using the hands in relation to the tongue. Um, And it explains that um, as the fetus develops, the hands and the tongue are actually joined and later they branch off from one another. And how in the sensory system, um, the representations of the hands and the tongue are quite close together. And we were talking before about gesticulation um, and how that might be linked. So yeah, I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, you know, the motor strip in the brain uh, is we call it the homunculus, but it's a little strip that kind of goes down uh, the side of the head and motor commands come from there. And in front of that is your sensory strip. And so the hands are very, very close to the larynx and the mouth. And so a lot of times those gestures do seem to inform what we're doing at the larynx and at the vocal folds and and with articulation. And so I have had good success having students kind of mimic with their hands, in particular their fingers, what they want to do with their voice. So if they want a high note, I'll have them gesture, you know, pointing up or raising the hands up or whatever. And if they want to go lower, we'll will sort of do that. If they want something that's more staccato, sometimes mimicking that with your gestures um, versus legato. You know, we've certainly seen singers who sway and kind of move their hands in a really smooth fashion. Um, And it's amazing how those things can actually inform your brain to inform your muscles what what you really hope that they'll do. Yeah, I love that. And I I was recently with somebody in a session and um, we were finding that there was a little bit of air obstruction just in a trill, but a simple um, propelling of the fingers 
And that was the only thing that we found in that lesson that would continue the airflow coming through. Um, and it's nuts. I love it when those things happen. <laughs> it's yeah. always a good moment. Yeah. You know, the the integration of the body is really a fascinating topic. And uh, several years ago, it's probably been three years, it was before the pandemic, I started doing some workshops with some colleagues. And one of those colleagues, Matthew Ellenwood, was very into sort of Michael Chekhov acting technique. And we began to really explore how the body really integrates with what's happening at the voice. And it's amazing. You know, we tend to think of everything kind of being downstream. So we think an emotion, then our body feels it, right? But the the, the reverse of that can be true as well. So our body can assume, say, a sad position or a whatever. And actually, the brain will then start to feel that emotion, So if I sit sort of slouched over, forehead crinkled up, you know, eventually my brain's going to start to think, what's wrong? Why are you stressed? And so it's two-way street. And a lot of times I think we think of it as a one-way street, that everything sort of happens in the brain and then, you know, the body begins to um, produce or kind of... Uh, represent these effects. But in fact, what we're doing in our body can really inform our brain as well, because we, we it's a feedback, it's a loop. It's a constant loop of, you know, what's the brain sending a signal, the, the muscles performing, and then sending information back to the brain about the effectiveness of that motor activity. And so I think a lot of times getting us out of our thinking as much as I love to talk about physiology, uh, I imagine people always might suspect that that's all we talk about in my lessons is the actual physiology. And the truth is we use playful things. Uh, we do a lot of imitating cartoon sounds uh, to feel something. We use our bodies. We're integrating things. We're using acting techniques. And uh, ultimately that helps us. But that underlying understanding of the physiology is really important. So we're not mismapping. So in other words, I'm not telling people don't feel anything in your tongue. That's just not realistic. And it's not helpful. And, you know, to say, uh, you're not going to feel any muscle activity under your chin. I mean, if you feel during normal everyday talking, that is normal. I mean, we would palpate that in the otolaryngology clinic as normal to actually feel softness or nothing there you have to really lift the tongue away from the floor of the mouth to feel nothing and that's not sustainable in conversational speech when you start engaging the articulators they're muscles they're meant to contract they're meant to be used and so to feel nothing would be a state of not allowing them to perform in their normal, usual fashion. Mm. So I think it's really finding that that state of balance and and just kind of understanding how to work with that structure. Mm. And you mentioned earlier about your thoughts on, on calling it tongue tension. And you mentioned there about how it's tension when it's happening at rest or when you're not doing anything or it lays over. So what would we be feeling if that were the case? Would it be a hardness or would we be feeling twitching or what would you kind of suggest we would be looking out for? 
Uh, I'm writing right now about the disorder muscle tension dysphonia because I'm working on an, an, an advanced endoscopy interpretation course. And I think a lot of this has come from uh, this diagnosis of muscle tension dysphonia, which is epidemic, right? Um, and what I can tell you about that disorder is that it's diagnosed when there's nothing else seen on the exam. So it's not that we sort of do fancy muscle measurements or it's it's when we kind of go, I don't really see anything. There's no nodules. There's no polyp. There's no paralysis. Um We'd like for you to have some therapy to see if the therapist can figure out something that's going on. And we need a diagnostic code for that. Otherwise, we can't send you to the therapist, right? So we have these what we call functional diagnostic codes that we give. And we either need to call it weakness or we need to call it muscle tension dysphonia because otherwise we really don't have a code that we can send you to the speech therapist with. We can't say we don't see anything, go to the speech therapist. Mm -hmm. We have to have a code. So I, first of all, I want people to understand that when we diagnose muscle tension dysphonia, more often than not, it is not that we have actually seen diagnostic indicators. The research has shown that palpating the neck, if you have two or three trained clinicians, they will not palpate with the same results. Mm -hmm. So there's poor reliability of this measure and so I don't think you're going to have people who say um, we definitely felt something when we when we were palpating the neck. Mm. I do think you might have the occasional person who says they feel strain or pain. And that would certainly be an indication that they've probably got some imbalance in that structure. They're probably using it. The placement of that is probably causing them some pain or discomfort. Um, one of the other indicators of that MTD diagnosis is supposedly a high larynx, but we know people who talk with a high larynx and they don't have problems. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a really also a problematic indicator because not everybody with a high larynx has an issue. I think we have some um, issues, not only with that diagnosis, but then how we evaluate um, the tongue structure in general. So I would say pain is an indicator. If a, if a student is complaining of pain, there's probably something there. Um, if they're feeling strained or pressed, uh, that may or may not be tongue related. It may be something they're doing at the vocal fold level or at the false vocal fold level. Um, but those those would probably be two things. And I in my course, what I'm telling people is listen to the voice. What are you hearing? You know, that's your that's your primary tool. As much as we love to have endoscopy, and endoscopy rules out all those all those things that I mentioned, nodules, polyps, cysts, paralysis, you know, bowing, whatever. It helps us rule out all those things. But then when we're sort of left with somebody who's just having an issue and we don't know what, use your ears. Um, look at the person, see what they're doing. Are they pulling their whole tongue back? Are they, is the voice pressed? Is it strained? Uh, is, you know, are they doing something unusual at the velum? So we sort of begin to do this top down. But if you get somebody with an MT diagnosis, MTD diagnosis, do not automatically assume that this is an issue with the tongue. And that's what I'm finding people do. They get somebody with an MTD diagnosis or they have a student who's been told they have muscle tension and they immediately assume that it's the tongue. Again, this is where I say the poor tongue gets blamed for everything. 
it may or may not be the issue. They may have some other issue. They may have a breathing issue. They may have a, a, you know, an issue somewhere else in the system. And I think sometimes we're getting blindsided by, um, by this kind of tunnel focus on blaming the tongue. And we're perhaps missing other, other things in the system because that's our immediate go-to. Mm-hmm. Now, just to kind of put that out into the the kind of field here, I have some some fictional scenarios to put to you, if that's okay. They're just completely made up. Um, something that a vocal coach might be experiencing or uh, noting down in their students. Um, so the first one I've made up is, I can't gargle. Does this have anything to do with my tongue? Why, when they say they can't gargle, what do they mean? Do, are they gagging? Are they... So the water will automatically fall down in the throat. They won't be able to sustain the bubbling of the water in the back of the throat. Is that anything oh. to do with the tongue? Well, the tongue is certainly what's holding the gargling there. I mean, it's you're lifting that sort of dorsum of the tongue. Um, and I would say they they probably haven't practiced enough with it. And they might benefit from gargling for further, further forward in the mouth first. Mm -hmm. um, but that is a tongue issue. And that's really just a placement issue, learning to coordinate that, mm. learning to get that dorsum sort of up to hold that, hold that liquid there from going down. Yeah. Gargling is, by the way, a great way to sort of train that high tongue position. Mm. And um, because you kind of do have to get, oh, you sort of have to get that dorsum up to be able to do that. Mm. Awesome. Um, where should my tongue be resting when I'm not doing anything? That's question two. It's re it should be resting on the roof of the mouth. Mm -hmm. So for most people, when you're at rest, that tongue is high in the mouth. Mm -hmm. And if it isn't, what might that indicate for us? Um, Again, I don't know that I would worry about it if it's not causing them any problem. Mm -hmm. It may just be their habituated resting tendency. I think for most people it is uh, up against the roof of the mouth. But if, if I had a student who said my tongue's laying low in my mouth, I probably wouldn't worry about it if it's not causing them any issues. Mm -hmm. Mm. I think that's also a key point, isn't it, about how we can read quite a lot of information and we kind of accept it as a given sometimes. But if the singer isn't complaining about anything or we can't relate stuff back as a potential, it doesn't necessarily have to always apply, um, which I know that I need reminding of because um, <laughs> I would love it if there was a tick box, Kerry, but there isn't, is there? <laughs> no, and and I think that's really key because a lot of times I think, well, that's different. That's different than what most people do. But is it? But then I always ask myself, is it a problem? Is it a problem that they're doing that? And mm -hmm. if the answer is no, then we leave it alone. Yeah. And, you know, there's no reason to fuss or worry with it. And also, you know, if I had a student who said I can't gargle, I don't know that I would worry about that. Mm. Um, is it a, is it a problem with the singing? Is it you know, is it a problem with their dental care? Probably mm. not. You know, they can probably figure out some way to swish their mouthwash without gargling. So there again, that might be something I would say, so what? You can't gargle, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> it's not the, not the end of the world. I probably wouldn't fiddle with it unless it was causing them some kind of problem. Mm. Mm. 
Um, and then one kind of that's a little slightly off singing topic, but one for me um, is the sensory uh, parts of the tongue uh, with our taste that's associated with taste. Can they be trained to like certain tastes? Oh, I have no idea. That's a really interesting question. I, <laughs> you know, my son is on the spectrum. I have a, a, a son who's on, who's got autism and he's, he's had very, very significant sensory issues with eating. And in fact, when he was really little, we went through a stage where he would only eat four or five things. Mm. And, you know, uh, he really has always disliked chewy meats. And so he's, he's pretty much lives on fish and, um, a, he's sort of pescatarian in that sense. You know, he likes fish because it's very flaky and it's not very chewy. And, um, but I can remember I would find chicken sort of pocketed in his mouth where he wouldn't have swallowed it because it was too chewy. And so, um, we went through a kind of a, a reintegration of sensory to try to desensitize him a little bit. And, you know, what people often do is they'll then avoid things that they don't like, but ultimately then you don't get better if you don't, if you avoid those things. And so one of the things that we would do is, is have him practice just licking the item. Um, and strong flavors were kind of likewise a problem for him. He didn't like things that had strong flavors. Mm. He tended to like things that were a little bit more bland. So he loved ramen noodles, but I could only use half the seasoning packet right. because the whole seasoning packet was too much seasoning for him. And, um, and he liked plain rice. <laughs> and so, um, you know, getting him to sort of eat vegetables and things was a challenge, but we, we started desensitizing by having him lick the item, kiss the item, put it in his mouth, taste it, spit it out. Um, and eventually he built tolerance to a lot of things. And now I would say he's eventually learned to like them. And it just took some kind of what I would call sensory reorganization. Mm -hmm. And so I would think that you could learn to sort of like things or perceive them differently with some uh, consistent trial and, and uh, working with them. But I, I don't, I don't know about that research or anything. I just know from my own work with my son and he's, he's 18 now and he's, he's eating just fine. <laughs> so uh, he, he's, he's turned the corner on all that. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Cause I'll, I'll, I love, I want to like coffee, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know, but I love the smell. Don't like the taste. So I'm kind of determined. Don't know if it's a good thing to add to my diet, but you know, in it goes. Well, you can do the experiment for us to start by, uh, you can do what I did with my five, you know, my four and five, when he was four and five years old, you can have, you can lick it, you can kiss it, you can taste it, spit it out. Um, and we'll, we'll check back in with you in about a year and see if you've been able to slowly desensitize. It's the bitter, it's yeah. the bitter in coffee that you probably don't like. Um, and I would think that your brain might eventually reorganize if you had consistent tasting of it. Mm. Well, I'll let you know. And next time we check in, I'll be buzzing off the walls from the cafe. <laughs> I was going to say, I can't live without coffee. So I have sort of the opposite issue. I need to, I need to stop drinking it. Yeah. <laughs> um, my last question, just to round off, is if you could pick 
any of your out of your favorite tongue exercises that you would encourage teachers to explore with what would it be oh gosh okay um that's hard because i have too many um (laughs) i would say first and foremost is getting that tongue forward and so i love singing on e or yay or ye um, the yeah, 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 the Lesak Y buzz is a really good exercise. You you say the word, it's easy, and you really feel that buzz between sort of the blade blade of the tongue and the dorsum of the tongue and the roof of the mouth. Mm-hmm. And you really feel the buzziness there in your mouth. You sort of feel that sensation of a buzz. That's a really great way to train that high forward tongue. And um, I love vocalizing students across scales and things. You know, scales are sort of meaningless unless you attach meaning to them. Mm. And so when I do vocalizes and scales and things like that with my students, uh, we, we always have a targeted purpose for doing them. So that's the kind of thing I might do scales and say, throughout the range, I want you to see if you can maintain the feeling of the buzz, Mm. um, just as a way to kind of train that high forward position. Mm. And, um, and so that's a really easy one. And I think it's a, a really useful exercise. Amazing. Thank you so much. Well, I'm really, really um, delighted to have been in your company this afternoon. And thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Um, Where can people find out more about you and get in touch with you if they have any questions? I'm so glad you asked. I just launched a new website and I'm happy for people to have a place now to go. Um, That was a, a labor of love. I don't know if you've ever put a website together, but Oh my goodness, it's a job. Um, so I would I would love for people to go visit me there. Um, but it's obertvoicestudios.com. O-B-E-R-T voicestudios.com. Lovely. And we'll pop that in the show notes as well so people can easily access you. Well, thank you so much, Kerry. I hope you have a lovely day and um, we'll check in with my coffee in, in a year or so. <laughs> yes, yeah. We'll have to have a follow-up now. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Have a great day. Looking to expand your vocal knowledge and add to your teacher toolbox? Then you're in the right place. BASTA here to guide you with our membership, a growing virtual library packed with educational videos spanning a whole host of voice teacher topics. It's just £1 for the first two weeks and £6 each month after that. Now that's what I call a bargain. To join, just head to our website, www.basttraining.com.